Have you ever been around someone whose joy made you uncomfortable? Someone that is just a little too excited, a little too happy, a little too joyful about their life or their situation or their story, and it just feels a little bit awkward? I know that I've been around people like that. I've probably been like that a time or two. And some of those experiences have happened in ministry situations when I've been with someone who has been set free. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, there are lots of different ways that we as people find ourselves in bondage. We feel that way because of our own sin. We know that. Sometimes there are sins that we battle for our entire lives and we feel like they have us wrapped up, bound up, and we don't know how to break free. When Christ sets someone free from that kind of sin, there's an unspeakable amount of joy. There's also sometimes that, that bondage, that oppression that comes from, from sadness, from stress, from frustration, from, from grieving a loss, from not knowing what to anticipate in the future. Maybe just being in the midst of a really difficult stretch of months where the whole world is upside down. We know what that's like. And when someone experiences what it truly means to be set free, especially in Christ, there is a joy that just can't be contained. We've seen even here in our worship gatherings at times, people who have shared their story of being set free from an addiction. When a person has battled an addiction for years, maybe even decades, when that freedom finally comes, how can we imagine anything else but just an incredible expression of joy? I think about times when we've been on the mission field. When we went to India a couple of years ago, one of the pastors prepared us. He said, just beware that sometimes in worship services, some of those believers in India might act in ways that would make your church congregation uncomfortable. But imagine what it's like for them to have spent their, their whole lives being tied to the idols and the false gods around them. Not only that, imagine that that was true for their ancestors, going back for generations. And so now the, the freedom that they've experienced in Christ has been so real for them, they can't help it. They are filled with joy that has to come out because they've been set free. This is, uh, as we get into John chapter 9, a story of freedom. And I think the, the man who's born blind, much like we see with some others who are healed in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts, he cannot keep inside him what the Lord does for him. And there is something about his response that makes people uncomfortable. And as we go through the story, we, we've already seen that some around him weren't sure what to make of all that took place, but it, it's even going to get worse than that. And yet all of this is an occasion where Christ set someone free. I have to say that as we've been going through this series, uh, the title of it is That You May Believe, readings in the Gospel of John. That The end of this Gospel, at the end John says, I, I wrote these things so that you might believe. The whole purpose is that someone would read these stories and they would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so with this series comes the challenge that we would be praying specifically for a person or for persons that we know are, are living either without Christ or away from Christ. 
and that God would give us opportunities this year as we pray for them to share with them the hope, the freedom that comes in Christ. So this series comes with that challenge that we would actively be looking for ways to share our faith. But I also just love the Gospel of John. I love the stories. I love the things that John chooses to tell us that he doesn't, we don't find in the other three Gospels. And of all the stories in John, I think this was the one I've been the most looking forward to preaching. Now, I imagined it being in a full room with two services to be able to engage and, and, and kind of have some back and forth. But this is the way it was meant to be. And I hope this story speaks to your heart today much like it has to mine. Now, I also want to just pause for a second and say thanks to Bobby Kelly. The last two Sundays, unexpectedly, uh, things in our family kind of changed. And so Bobby preached for two Sundays, and he preached from 1 John. Now, that paused our series in the Gospel of John a little bit. But the positive thing was we got to see John, who wrote this gospel, later in his life. We got to see not just John the disciple, not just John who tells the stories of walking with Jesus, but John as the apostle and, and the pastoral shepherding leader later on in the life of the church. And the passages we read in 1 John, as God likes to do, go perfectly with what we're reading today. In particular, Jesus as the light of the world. And one of the things that's so important to note in John's gospel is that Jesus' statements, as John tells us these stories, are always matched by a sign of some sort. We saw that if you were reading through, again, hopefully if you've been reading through the gospel with us, in chapter 6, when Jesus makes the statement, I am the bread of life, he also feeds 5,000 people from a boy's five small loaves of bread and two fish. The sign matches the statement. The statement is matched by a sign. And here, as Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he genuinely opens the eyes of a blind man so that he can truly see the light. So we continue on now, starting in verse 1, John chapter 9. Through Jesus, the light of the world, the statement he makes about himself, the works of God are produced. This was true in John 9, and it is still true today. Through Jesus, only through Jesus, are the works of God produced. And as the light of the world, the works of God are bringing light into the darkness and in many ways we get to be a part of that being the light of the world ourselves through jesus christ as he went along he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked a question that is a fair question and a common question rabbi who sinned whose fault is it that this man was born this way was it his own sin that god knew he would commit or did his parents sin in some way? It's a fair question because in one sense they're right. Blindness, sickness, illness, however you want to describe it, those things are, are the result of the fall of human beings, of sin. So in one sense they're right. It is because of sin that things like blindness exist on the earth. But on the other hand, it's a common question. Because still today, aren't we always looking for someone to blame? 
for for the disciples they can't understand what good could possibly come of this jesus is going to tell them in a moment they can't see anything good here they can't see purpose they can't see the opportunity for the works of god to be produced and so they need someone to blame much like we want when things aren't going well for us or in our culture or around us we need somebody to blame we need to point the fingers at someone but jesus says verse 3 neither this man nor his parents sinned this particular thing has nothing to do with them but this happened so that the works of god might be displayed in him in other words jesus says god is at work even in this situation god is presently at work his works are being produced even in the suffering of this man who's an adult who was born blind and has suffered blindness for many years the question is can you see it god is at work can you see it this is not his fault this is not a punishment either for him or for his parents but instead god is at work and if you have eyes to see it you will see that the works of god are about to be displayed in him again jesus makes these statements but they're going to be matched with with signs with action as long as it is day jesus says we must do the works of him who sent me in other words as the father sent me jesus says later in this gospel i send you as long as in this moment in this age we are called to display the works of god to be the light in the darkness we must do the father's work but it's not always going to be this way right now it is day but night is coming when jesus says this it's both in a good way and a bad way when he says night is coming it's good because there will come a time where there will be no more blindness where there will be no more suffering no more sickness no more death no more sadness that's the good thing that's coming but on the other hand it's a warning it's a reminder that we only have a limited time on this earth in this age to do the works of god we only have a small amount of time to continue to be like the disciples were god working in their midst but they have not yet seen it we can only have this moment this short period of time to do the works of the father while it is still day and so the challenge is that we would make every moment count it's still day but night is coming but again with the statement while i'm in the world i am the light of the world is then matched with the sign through jesus the light of the world the eyes of the blind are opened now this is a statement about this story but again just like the first point it stands on its own even now through jesus the light of the world the light of christ opens the eyes of the blind physically yes but even more so intellectually even more so spiritually that's what happened to us right if we say that we have experienced the light we have seen the light of christ we have 
embraced his salvation we have become a new creation then we say we once were blind but now we see our eyes have been opened the statement i am the light of the world is matched with the sign after saying this he spit on the ground he made some mud out of the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes now this is not the most flattering of images it's not the only time that jesus uses mud or dirt or in some way uses saliva to accomplish a miracle we might ask the question why does he do it this way there are other times where he doesn't it doesn't seem like the most pleasant experience the man's already the man has already dealt with blindness now saliva and mud are wiped on his eyes if you look to some of the teaching because there's no explanation of why here in scripture if you look to some of the teaching of the early church fathers many of them connect this to genesis 2 7 genesis 2 7 tells us how did god create human beings out of the dust of the ground and so many connect this to Genesis 2-7 and say, this is another act of creation. Jesus uses the dust of the ground to recreate the eyes of the blind man that were lacking sight. It's an act of creation. I like that. But even more, I like the idea of the symbol of purity. What did Jesus do by wiping saliva and mud on the man's eyes? You look back to the Hebrew scriptures, we already think of mud as dirty, unclean, but, but saliva, fluids from the body, constantly in the Hebrew scriptures are called unclean. So what does Jesus do? Well, he shows us here, I think, a spiritual sign that he's not only bringing physical healing to the man's blindness, but spiritually. The man is being transformed from unclean to clean, from dirty to pure, just as much as he's going from blindness to sight. This is much like when we see Jesus heal a leper by touching, physically touching the leper. You never touch a person with leprosy. The person with leprosy is always outside of the camp, not only because you don't want to be infected, of course, but because of uncleanness and the purity laws of the Jewish people. But when Jesus heals the lepers, more often than not, he doesn't do it from a distance. He physically touches them. They go from uncleanness to purity. And even as Jesus touches them, he remains pure and clean. So I love this picture. The physical healing, but also the spiritual healing. The transformation from darkness to light. From unclean to purity. Jesus tells him, go and wash in the pool of siloam <clears throat> and john tells us perhaps to just help the reader know the aramaic word it means scent but maybe also because in just a little bit the man is going to be sent in front of authorities to explain what jesus has done for him go wash in the pool of siloam so the man went he washed and he came home seeing john tells us in very few words how the miracle took place this idea of washing in the pool may remind you of something you also read as you've been going through your reading back in john 5 zach referred to this in his devotion a few weeks ago when jesus came upon the disabled man who was lying on his mat this too was at the pool of bethesda and there was this idea that 
if the man could get in the pool, he could be healed. And Jesus says, we don't need that. Pick up your mat right now and go home. And the man was healed. In this case, Jesus sends him to wash his eyes clean, the man who was blind. But the miracle took place, just like with the man at the pool of Bethesda through the word, the personal work of Jesus. Verse 8, I love this. His neighbors, I mean, who believes when something like this happens, right? His neighbors and those who used to see him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg for in the ancient world? How did a blind person most often have his or her needs met by begging? This was his life. Some said, yes, that is him. Others said, no, he just looks like him. Don't you love that? But he himself said, I am that man. It's me. And so they ask, of course, well, then how were your eyes open? The man they called Jesus made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash in Siloam. And so I went and washed, and then I could see. Unbelievable personal story that this man now has. And his neighbors who doubt, who don't understand, they're hearing the testimony, not just that I can see, but Jesus is the one who set me free. To me, it with the man born blind, and now we'll, we'll call him the formerly blind man from this point on, I, I sense in this story, and we'll see it as we read a little further in a moment, some personality. He seems to me to have a sense of humor, but even more than that, he seems to be a little bit feisty. As often people who deal with blindness or other disabilities are, they have to make a decision are they going to wallow in, in self-pity of their disability or are they going to fight? And are they going to live? And this was clearly a man who, at least as far as I see in the story, he's pretty feisty. I think about a friend that many of us have in our church here named Sarah, who was also born blind. Sarah's in our young adult ministry. As she was actively involved, there were lots of us that would, would volunteer to take her places to give her rides. And one particular night, me and my two daughters, Abigail and Kinsley, were taking Sarah home. And we went to her place where she lives, and as we came up and helped her get the door open, I was really uncomfortable because we opened the door to where she and her roommate lives, and the whole place is just completely dark, and it's, in, it's at night. And so I say to Sarah, would it be better if we turn the lights on? And Sarah says to me, well, if it makes you feel better, I guess that's fine. Makes no difference to me. Love her personality, her, her fight. Sarah, for those of you who know her, man, she's accomplished a lot in her life. The man born blind, he is feisty. He has a personality to him. And, and what Jesus has done for him has just unlocked it, set it free. But before we continue to the end of his story, I want to come back for just a minute to the light of the world to Jesus. Because though the neighbors and others are surprised here to see what has happened, this ought to be no surprise to anyone who's read the scriptures, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Nor should it be a surprise to his disciples, who he's been telling all along, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen through the power of God while it is day working through me. 
One of my favorite passages in the New Testament comes not from John, but from the Gospel of Luke. Early on in Jesus' ministry, right after he resisted and rejected the devil's temptations, he begins going from place to place, and he's constantly saying, the kingdom of God is here. And on this occasion in his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up, where everybody knew him, kind of think of the man born blind. Isn't this the guy that we all know? Later on, they're going to say, isn't this the son of the carpenter? In his hometown, Jesus is asked, again, early on in his public ministry, to step up in the synagogue, in his hometown synagogue, and offer the daily reading. Much like today, we had our reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, and it was from Isaiah. Jesus was asked to offer the reading in his synagogue. And so he stood up, the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and of all the places from which he would have read, these are the words that Jesus read as Luke records them. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then as he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down. I love this, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were locked on him. And he said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, what happens in John 9? It's simply a fulfillment of what Jesus said from the beginning would be among the fruit of his ministry, that the eyes of the blind would be open. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they would see through Jesus' ministry the work of God being displayed in their midst. But back to John 9, there's more to the story. And this is where it gets really important for us as we watch those who did not have the eyes to see and the ears to hear who Jesus was and, and to see the work that God the Father was doing through him. Moving into our third point, which we'll follow with some scripture. Because of Jesus, the light of the world, the true thoughts of our hearts are revealed. And that's certainly what happens next. What happens next if we think of the disciples when they came across the man wanting to point the finger of blame? Whose fault is this? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? It's going to be even more so with the religious leaders who, who are now going to be brought into this story and they're going to have to deal with the fallout. The religious leaders, as we're going to see, <coughs> excuse me, are again much like people in our own culture. They're going to participate in the whataboutism. Because they don't have an explanation for what Jesus has done, because they want, don't want to acknowledge that things about Jesus are good and right and true, because they don't want to acknowledge that they've been wrong, they're going to continue to dig in their heels. And they're going to say, much like we've been watching all week long in Washington, on all sides, everybody's saying, well, yes, I did that, but you did that. 
I watch our leaders right now and I think, what marriage counselor would ever tell to two spouses, you know, the best way to heal and to go forward is to make sure you keep pointing fingers at each other and pointing out everything the other person did wrong and never take any responsibility for your own actions. All across the board, that is our culture. And our leaders are just that same way. Here in John 9, these are the leaders. These are the experts, the teachers of the law, supposed to be the most pious, the most righteous, the most trustworthy. And the vast majority of them can never acknowledge the very things for, for which they need to repent. They cannot open up themselves at all to be vulnerable even to God that they might need to change something about their lives. They have no explanation for what just happened. Look in, starting in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes was a Sabbath. Gee, I wonder what these guys are going to focus on. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Same explanation. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. Now, nothing wrong with saying that. We've seen that description given by the woman in Samaria as well. But just like with her, Jesus will soon correct that. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they zero in on the fact that this happened on the Sabbath. They're looking through the whataboutism to say, but he did this on the Sabbath, but he must be a sinner, but this can't possibly be what it appears because it doesn't fit the box we've created. So I love this. It's an interrogation now. They're interrogating the man born blind. They don't have a good answer, so they say, well, what about you? What's your explanation? The man who had been born blind, the formerly blind man. Now the interrogation continues they call in another set of witnesses, his parents. It's kind of like the same discussion the disciples were having with Jesus. Let's bring in his parents, verse 18. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. What's our series called? That You May Believe. Where were the Pharisees at this point in the story? They still didn't believe this could be possible. So they brought in his parents, and they asked him, Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And listen to what John tells us. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be kicked out of the synagogue, put out, excommunicated, no longer welcome, socially outcast. And because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, his parents said, he's a grown-up. 
ask him why are you interrogating us he's already told you what happened he's not a little kid this was his experience he is of age ask him story continues the interrogation continues so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind give glory to god by telling the truth they say sounds like an oath doesn't it we know this man is a sinner they say about jesus here's where that personality comes out in the man who was blind but also this incredible faith and confidence whether he is a sinner or not he replied i don't know but one thing i do know i was blind but now i see kind of makes you want to break out into a song doesn't it i don't know about what you say but i do know that i was blind and now i see so they asked him what what did he do to you how did he open your eyes i love this he answered i've told you already and you did not listen why do you want to hear it again do you want to become his disciples too man this guy is bold that joy that makes us uncomfortable that confidence no way to explain it except the man had been set free and the boldness to challenge the religious leaders his parents were afraid of them to challenge the religious leaders and to say to them i don't know if he's a sinner or not all i know is that not i've been set free and maybe you maybe what's happening in you is that you know you should be his disciples too then verse 28 they hurled their insults at him they said you are this fellow's disciple we are disciples of moses we know that god spoke to moses but for as for this fellow we don't even know where he comes from the man answered now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners he listens to the godly person who does his will nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing we think about this man as the man who had his eyes open but look at the the spiritual transformation and the fruit and the evidence of it look at the boldness do you think do we think this is the last time that this man stood publicly for jesus christ no way if he's this bold in the <clears throat> the first moments after his experience with christ with the religious leaders who his parents are afraid of imagine what it was like later to this they replied remember they're throwing their insults at him you were steeped in sin at birth how dare you lecture us that self-righteousness and they threw him out just like his parents were afraid would happen to them later jesus is going to say this is this is harsh this is strong but you see in the way the religious leaders treated the man born blind why jesus uses these strong words woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when you have succeeded you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are you ever think jesus spoke that way woe to you he continues blind guides 
Who's blind? Who can see? Again, the Pharisees and, and other religious leaders throughout the Gospels, they continually refuse to even acknowledge the very attitudes for which they need to repent. And yet as the story closes, the focus comes off of the Pharisees, forget those guys, and back on the formerly blind man to whom Jesus continues to be so personal. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out of the synagogue. He went and found him and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. About that word, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He's a prophet no longer to the man who had been born blind. Now he is Messiah, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. I love thinking about these kinds of things. I wonder what actually happened to the man, the formerly blind man later. When Jesus comes back to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, when he's coming in at, on Palm Sunday, but then ultimately is going to be crucified, where do you think the formerly blind man was? Do you think he was in the crowd shouting, crucify him? No way. He was shouting Hosanna all along. Was he one of the few in the upper room after Jesus ascended to heaven at the beginning of Acts? There's a small group of people, 120, who begin the church. Is he one of them? He lived in Jerusalem. Later on in Acts, as the church grows, does he become a leader in the church in Jerusalem? Is he at least, he's at least got to be the guy that every year, at least once a year, he gets to stand up and share his story because it's just too good. I love thinking about what happened later because his story didn't end here. Jesus said to him, verse 39, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now when he said this, he said it to the formerly blind man, but the Pharisees were listening. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Love this quote from D.A. Carson. He said, The Pharisees rarely come across as sinners who are aware of their need and eager to be rid of their sin. Instead, they were too arrogant to admit the depth of their blindness. So the brilliant shining of the true light only blinds them further. So today as I close, what are the true thoughts of our hearts that the light of Christ might reveal? What areas of our lives might there be blindness? Where are we resistant to the work of God in our hearts and lives? Where do we have bitterness? Where do we have unconfessed sin? What things for which we need to repent are we unwilling to even acknowledge are in our hearts or our attitudes? Or may we be those who see and be like the formerly blind men who say, Lord, I believe.